Welcome back to the ITK podcast. I'm UK and let's get right into the show. Fumilai Oram Sonkuti and the organization she led, the Abiyokuta Women's Union, are credited with being the primary force for the removal of the traditional ruler of Egba, Alake Ademola II, in 1949, a feat which has been entrenched not only in history, but in legend. This is not the only monumental feat Fumi bagged in her day. Her childhood essentially prepared her for tougher journeys, including one she inadvertently grappled with all her life, which is advocating for women to be viewed as equal to men. She was born in Abiyokuta on October 25, 1900, to a farming father and a dressmaking mother, and was the first female student to attend the Abiyokuta Grammar School in 1914. She was assertive and energetic, and undoubtedly her experience of living thousands of miles away from her family while attending school in Cheshire, England, also helped her to mature and develop confidence to become self-sufficient. While in England, Fumi learned the skills of articulation, music, dressmaking, French, and various domestic skills, which aided her in her bid for self-sufficiency and further disposed her to the possibility of women being more than just domestic tools, which is what they were typically regarded as at the time in Nigerian culture. She decided to permanently adopt her shortened Yoruba name Fumilayo instead of her Christian first name Francis after encountering some experiences with racial discrimination in England. She was determined and made up her mind to embrace her Yoruba identity and showcase the prominence and excellence of women wherever she went. She was determined and made up her mind to embrace her Yoruba identity and showcase the prominence and excellence of women wherever she went. On her father's side, Fumi was descended from Sarah Taiwo, a Yoruba woman who had been captured by slave traders in the early 19th century before eventually returning home to her family in Abiyokuta. So she always identified with her history and the strength and character which were ingrained in her bloodline. Fumi's parents were progressive and believed in the importance of education for both boys and girls, which is very unconventional at the time. Therefore, she had great precedence for becoming a proper trailblazer, and her lineage was an embodiment of that. On the 20th of January 1925, Fumi married Reverend Israel Oludotu Ramson Kuti, a member of the Ramson Kuti family. Israel had studied at the Abiyokuta Grammar School several years ahead of her, and while she was still in school, both of them developed a friendship that grew into a courtship. Fumi grew to be a prolific Nigerian educator, political campaigner, suffragist, and women's rights activist, and this sense of gender equality also manifested in her marriage to Israel. On the day of their marriage, the Ramsonkutis moved to Jebode, a town just to the southeast of Abiyokuta. Jebode was a Yoruba town much older than Abiyokuta. Israel Ramsonkuti became principal of the Jebode Grammar School in 1919, while his future wife was studying in England. He was 27 when he assumed the office of principal, becoming the youngest Nigerian to be principal of a secondary school. He arrived in Ijebuade at a time when there were few schools in Nigeria, but a great deal of interest in Western education. There was some lingering distrust between Egba and Ijebu Yorubas, and one of his missions, consistent with his increasingly nationalist orientation, was to eliminate rivalry between the two groups of Yorubas and to increase their awareness of being one people 
with common characteristics. One of his pupils, Atijebuade, later commented that the Reverend, which is what Israel was popularly called, had expended a great deal of energy towards this goal and that his openness and broad-minded attitude gained the trust and admiration of the people of Ijebuade. By the time of their marriage, Israel was already involved in civic activities in Ijebuade and even organized its first Boy Scout troop. When Fumi accompanied her husband to Ijebuade, she was much impressed with his popularity amongst the townspeople and his dedication to his pupils. Later, she remarked that the first years of their marriage there were unforgettably happy. Her marriage and relocation required her to resign her teaching position at the Abiyokuta Grammar School, but immediately on her arrival at Ijebode, she set about assisting as unpaid help at the school where her husband was principal. She did this until 1928 when she founded a kindergarten class known simply as Mrs. Kuti's class for four and five-year-old children. The class began with nine pupils and was certainly one of the pioneering preschool classes in Nigeria. It became well known and widely respected in the town and grew at a rapid rate. In 1931, when Israel and Fumi left Ijebode to return to Abiyokuta, they were escorted from town by an honor guard of hundreds of parents of the grammar school pupils. Upon their return, Fumi began a kindergarten class which was one of the first preschool classes in Nigeria. Israel would later go on to become co-founder of both the Nigerian Union of Teachers and of the Nigerian Union of Students. Sadly, he passed on in 1955 due to prostate cancer after an extended period of illness. The 30 years of his marriage with Fumi were reported to have been a married life marked by mutual respect and fulfillment. In 1933, while head teacher of the girls' branch of the Abiyokuta Grammar School, Fumi organized a group of young girls and women into a ladies' club. This group primarily concentrated on learning handicrafts and social etiquette. The group consisted of 12 women who, like her, were Western-educated, Christian, and middle-class. Similarly to the Ejebo Ode-based ladies' club she had established prior, these women undertook civic projects with community youth in Abiyokuta. They organized teenagers of both sexes and held picnics athlete games, and lectures for their entertainment and education. In early 1944, Fumi was approached by an old friend and a former student who introduced her to a market woman that informed Fumi of her great desire to learn to read. The woman confided with her that she often purchased newspapers and saved them for the day when she could read. Fumi had another friend who whenever she went to church, she held her hymnal upside down because she couldn't read. These experiences prompted Fumi to undertake the task of teaching these women to read. By the late 1940s, however, the club was moving in a more political direction. Fumi began organizing literacy workshops for market women through the club, and she subsequently gained a greater understanding of social and political inequalities faced by many Nigerian women. She incessantly wrote countless articles about the freedoms granted by her more privileged background and noted that the true position of Nigerian women had to be judged from the women who carried babies on their backs and farmed from sunrise to sunset, not women who used tea, sugar and flour for breakfast. She developed a successful campaign to stop local authorities 
seizing rights from market women under false pretenses. And in 1946, the club was formally renamed the Abiyokuta Women's Union, now open to all women in Abiyokuta. The organization turned its focus to fighting unfair price controls and taxes imposed on market women and retained Fumi as the president. She founded the union along with Grace Eniola Shoinka and gradually it grew to represent 20,000 official members with up to 100,000 additional supporters. Her vision was that of both a nationalist and a democratic socialist. Her nationalism was informed by a number of circumstances and experience. She spent two-thirds of her life as a colonial subject in a colonized country. Her experience of colonialism was worsened by the fact that the colonizers were European and the colonized were African. Though she successfully defended against a purely racial analysis of colonialism, she still saw race as a critical factor and took a stand against it when she dropped her European name while in England. Her views were also elucidated by an example described by her grandnephew, Walesha Inka, in his book Ake, The Years of Childhood. According to Shoinka, who often spent time in the Ramsonkuti home in Abiyokuta and for a short time was a student at the Abiyokuta Grammar School. Fumi was appalled by the dropping of the atomic bomb on the heavily populated Japanese cities of Hiroshima and Nagasaki in 1943. In a heated conversation with a British district officer of Abiyokuta after the bombing, she insisted that it was a racist act, asking the officers during their discussion why the Germans hadn't suffered the same fate as the Japanese. In the early 70s, when she began using Anikulak Bokuti as a last name. Many identified her pan-Africanist son, Fela, as the cause. Though he may indeed have suggested it, Fumi always made up her own mind, and much in her past suggests that such nationalist feeling was not new to her. After Nigerian independence, Fumi, in the midst of demanding women's equality, simultaneously counseled women to be more tolerant and even forego temporarily their own interest for those of their husbands. These were the early days of independence when nationalist voices everywhere proscribed women as helpmates to their husbands in constructing the nation. Fumi was not much of a champion of such proscription, contradicting herself even in the very same article. The number of small-scale trading ventures and business schemes in which she became personally involved, in addition to her teaching and the collective business of the Abiyokuta Women's Union were numerous. She did everything from selling eggs to marketing farm produce from the Thomas family farms at Ifo to acting as a retail agent for a company in Ibado, manufacturing mineral in the 1930s. She mixed well with the market women and recalled her mounting anger as she became aware of more women's concerns. She listened to them speak of conditional sales, a method used to force women to buy certain unrelated goods in tandem like purchases of sugar were coupled with mandatory purchases of cutlasses. This was an attempt to force the burden of slower-moving goods onto the female traders. Since the vast majority of the market women survived on small margins of profit and had traditionally exercised control of the commodities' prices, conditional sales placed most of them in an even more precarious economic position as well as removed their autonomy as traders. The imposition of quotas of food to be sold to the government and attempted government control of what foodstuffs should be sold and where were also difficult also for the women. Even representatives of the Alake in an attempt to satisfy the quotas 
confiscated the traders' wares or paid them less than market value and then resold to government at a higher than market value. Police were stationed at various roads leading out of Abiyokuta to ensure that until the government quotas were filled, no food could be sold in other major trading centers such as Lagos, Ibadan or Ijebuade. Fumi began to believe in her own words. We educated women, we are living outside the daily life of the people. She decided to abandon Western clothing, wearing instead the traditional Yoruba-wrapped cloth in order to make women feel and know she was one with them. In fact, no photograph of her after the late 40s, even those taken on her international trips, shows her in anything other than a Yoruba dress. Given the more radical turn her philosophy and activities would take, this was likely as much of a statement of class allegiance as that of cultural pride. Fumi's first well-known political activity came when she led the AWU in a protest against a tax on women. In Abiyokuta, alongside regular taxes for income and water usage, market women were also forced to pay a special tax that went directly to market supervisors. After a failed appeal to British authorities to remove the current alake from power and halt the tax, Fumi and the AWU began contacting newspapers and circulating petitions aiming to put more pressure on authorities. AWU members publicly refused to pay their taxes, staged long vigils outside the Alakes palace and arranged an audit of the sole native authority system's financial records. Along with their objective of ending the tax on women, they demanded representation for women on the SNA's executive council. Tensions between AWU protesters and authorities came to a head in February 1948 when the Alake compared the AWU women to vipers that could not be tamed and banned Fumi from entering the palace for political meetings. Immediately afterwards, AWU members blocked the palace entrance and refused to let the visiting British district officer leave. The incident concluded with a scuffle when Fumi grabbed hold of the steering wheel of the district officer's car and refused to let go until he pried her hand loose. From the early 1940s, dissatisfaction with the Alake and the sole native authority system had increased. In 1940, the Alake increased the tax on water, better known as the water rate. When news of the increase reached the populace, 10,000 people gathered outside the palace and the office of the British resident. When Alake Ademola II appeared, and gave a speech supporting the increase, the crowd chanted in Yoruba, Awakuba. Subsequently, the daily service carried editorials questioning the increases on July 10th, 21st, and 22nd, 1940. In early 1942, several Egba chiefs were jailed for embezzling tax funds, which served to exacerbate the people's frustration with the taxation system. The Alakia was quite popular with the British administration, even with the Abiyokuta province annual reports being full of complaints of his corruption and maladministration. The complaints, however, were labeled as the disgruntled grumbling of an undisciplined populace. Undoubtedly for many Egba, who had little direct contact with the British, the Alake was their only real symbol of authority. Still, some, including Fumi, were aware that the Alake was a symbol of colonialism. In a May 1975 interview with New Breed magazine, she commented, What people are saying is that I attacked Adimola 
I didn't uh, really attack Adimola. I attacked imperialism. Those Europeans, they were using him against his people. I was attacking Europeans indirectly. And they know attacking a ruler who abused his power was not an imported ideal, but very much part of a bad tradition. Alakea Ademola II was between the proverbial rock and a hard place. On the one hand, the Egba held him responsible for their welfare and expected him to respond in traditional ways to local issues. On the other, the colonial authorities held him responsible for implementing their policies, which by the nature of colonialism evaluated the welfare of Abiyokutans on the yardstick of the welfare of the colonial system rather than in terms of the local situation. Particularly, when it came to women, the British imported their own views of women's proper arenas of activity and thus were often blinded to women's activities in pre-colonial Nigeria. The British failed to take due note of women's dissatisfaction with government interference in areas that women had previously controlled themselves, such as choosing market sites. It did not help, of course, that there was ample evidence that the Alake did in fact engage in corrupt practices. Corruption at the top filtered through the ranks, and thus, members of government bodies and committees, even policemen, also often demanded their cuts when negotiating bribes. Throughout early 1948, AWU members continued to protest the tax, fighting with petitions, press conferences, letters to newspapers, and demonstrations. After more demonstrations in late April of that year, the Alake finally responded to the women's demands suspending the tax on women and appointing a special committee to look into the AWU's complaints. In early 1949, the AWU's efforts led to the temporary relinquishment of the Alake, which was in itself a testimonial to the ever-so-celebrated prevalence of persistence and the valiance of faith and justice. That's it for this week's episode. Special thanks to Dosekip for writing, and a big thanks to Talkway for voicing. If you enjoy this podcast, please rate us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your fix. Follow the podcast so you can get weekly updates. If you have any topics, events, or people you would like to see covered, hit me up on Twitter at ITK underscore podcast or on Instagram at ITK underscore podcast. I'm UK, and this has been the ITK Podcast. <laughs>